G'day Ice Coffee listeners. Welcome to the first episode for 2017, where we rejoin Scott's British Antarctic expedition at Winter Quarters. In the early 20th century, the embryology of emperor penguin chicks was thought, by some, to hold the key to a question about the evolution of birds, and Wilson convinced Scott to let him lead a sledging party around the eastern side of Ross Island to the penguin rookery at Cape Crozier. The idea that ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny, or that an organism passes through stages resembling its entire evolutionary history during its embryological development, was not new when Ernst Haeckel started trying to reconcile Lamarck's ideas about linear descent with Goethe's ideas about metamorphosis and Darwin's ideas about a tree of life. But Heichel is the name most often associated with recapitulation theory because it was the diagrams of embryos with which he illustrated his work that overemphasized similarities, and this misrepresentation, when uncovered as misleading, led to his ideas being examined more closely and discarded. Current thinking in the field of evolutionary development hold on to two of Heichel's ideas, and embryos demonstrably do exhibit signs of phylogenetic heritage though not in the clear, linear manner that Heichel disingenuously illustrated, and he is often brought up by creationists as an example of an evolutionary biologist so enamoured of their hypothesis that they're willing to lie to push their point. In the early 20th century, emperor penguins were thought to represent the most primitive extant form of bird, and were deemed the most likely source of recapitulative information on bird evolution. If Wilson could get his hands on emperor penguin eggs at varying stages of development, the embryos might shed light on the evolutionary path that led to birds. He expected to observe a link between reptilian scales and avian feathers in the embryos within emperor penguin eggs. Scott tried to dissuade his friend from the project, but Wilson, likely to get what he wanted from Scott regardless, sold the owner on the project by proposing a dietary experiment. The three members of the party, Wilson, Bowers and Cherry Garrard, would eat distinct diets of extreme proportions of pemmican, butter and biscuits, and record how they each fared, offering potentially useful insights into the composition of sledging rations for future journeys. The trio departed on the 27th of June, hauling their equipment and six weeks' supplies on two sledges, heading south into darkness in temperatures around the range where Celsius and Fahrenheit coincide, which qualifies as frickin' cold, according to the MacArthur scale. On their second night, for what meaning that word has so close to the austral winter solstice at 78 degrees south, they camped near the barrier edge after rounding Cape Armitage. The temperature dropped to minus 49 degrees Celsius, making even breathing uncomfortable. Sledging on the barrier proved slow due to the snow being so cold the sledge runners couldn't melt it and allow the sledge to slide, akin to pulling their load over sand. The trio relayed their sledges forward. Perspiration soaked their clothing, then froze it solid. The damp, chilled, cramp-ridden hours spent in their sleeping bags felt as miserable as the time spent in harness. The temperature reached a record low of negative 61 degrees Celsius on the 5th of July, remaining below negative 50 degrees Celsius for much of the rest of the haul. 
On rising each morning, the sledges would emerge from the tent and spend a minute or so in a crouch, ensuring their damp clothes froze into a shape suited to sledging. As they'd learnt, being frozen into their togs while upright produced a shape which only added to the high levels of discomfort already achieved by hauling in the winter darkness. Any breath of wind felt like razors across their ice-sodden clothing, and the darkness made placing each footfall, let alone spotting crevasses, difficult. They reached Cape Crozier on the 15th of July, building a stone igloo roofed with tent canvas on a hill above the penguin rookery. Beside their sleeping quarters, they pitched their tent as a galley. Reaching the penguins proved its own challenge, with a maze of ice ridges and falls to traverse before they reached the sea ice on which the birds nested. The rookery comprised only a hundred birds, three of which they killed for oil as their stove fuel was running low. They carried out six eggs, though three broke on the uphill journey through the ice maze. Strong winds kept them in their igloo for several days. On the night of the 23rd of July, Wilson's birthday, their tent, their only shelter for the return journey, blew away in the strengthening wind, and the canvas roof of their igloo blew to shreds. The trio hunkered down in their sleeping bags and contemplated the release that might come with madness or death. Drama Note I've been rereading Apsley Cherry Garrard's account, The Worst Journey in the World, which makes the Cape Crozier trip sound like what it says on the cover. Dr. Wilson's sledging diaries give a very different impression of the trip. He writes that it was hard work and accounts all the salient points, but you wouldn't think that journey anything extraordinary if his writing served as your only source. After two days in their bags with no food, they made a cooking shelter out of their ground sheet and fueled up with a pemmican hoosh before heading out to look for their tent. Bowers found it a quarter mile from the igloo, but intact. Relieved, the trio headed for home on the 25th. With food and fuel running out, the sledge ran light, but exhaustion from the four weeks of midwinter outdoor living made itself felt. They each regularly fell asleep on the march and nodded off over the stove. On the 31st of July, they reached Hut Point, and late on the 1st of August, staggered into the hut at Cape Evans. The three men had to be cut out of their frozen clothing. Their faces creased and weather-beaten, their eyes dull, their hands swollen from constant damp and cold. Ponting's before and after photos of the Cape Crozier team tell the story. The camera artist, commenting of the haunting looks in the eyes of the returned men, wrote, Once before I have seen similar expressions on men's faces, when some half-starved Russian prisoners, after the Battle of Mukden, were taken to Japan. The data from the rations experiment informed the allocations for the polar journey, and in spite of the exhaustion and cold, the party members lost little weight, Wilson losing the most condition at three pounds. The sleeping bags put on weight, Cherry Garrard's starting the trip at 18 pounds and ending it weighing 45 pounds, having gained 27 pounds in ice. The Cape Crozier journey achieved its goal, and the near-death misery of the five-week trip generated close bonds between Bowers, Cherry Garrard and Wilson.
Besides the Cape Crozier trip, winter passed mostly uneventfully. Atkinson spent six hours lost in bad weather while visiting one of the weather stations half a mile from the hut, being found frost-nipped but otherwise unharmed, and Griffith Taylor raised Scott's ire for coming home late from an October bicycle jaunt along the shore of Ross Island to the Erebus Ice Tongue. Cycling on the cinder shore turned out to be harder than expected, and by the time he finished his geologizing, he was too tired to ride the machine, walking it back instead. Exhaustion set in, and he sat for a rest, but found he couldn't rise again. Silas Wright, working nearby, spotted his friend and half-carried him to the hut. The bicycle, mangled by its half-century in the wind and snow, came to light in 1961, discovered by a historical preservation team from New Zealand, working to conserve the Ross Island huts. While the tongue lashing he received was water off Taylor's back, Scott's acid tongue put out Debenham, and tensions between Scott and Oates didn't improve through the winter. With Scott refusing to acknowledge the limitations he saw in the ponies, Oates considered heading north on the Terranova that summer, but decided to stick it out for the thought of the pride his regiment might experience should he make it to the pole. Scott and Lieutenant Evans were also not getting along in a repeat of the falling out between Scott and Armitage a decade prior. The motor sledges departed Cape Evans on the 24th of October under Lieutenant Evans' leadership. With him and the three tons of stores went Bernard Day, William Lashley and Frederick Hooper, aiming for Corner Camp and, from there, south to 80 degrees 30 minutes, though no one fully expected the motor sledges to actually kick that ultimate goal. On the 1st of November, Scott, Wilson, Atkinson, Bowers, Oates, Cherry Garrard, Wright, Kirhan, Crean, and Edgar Evans began leading ten ponies in the wake of the motor sledges. Cecil Mears and Dmitry Garoff departed last, with 23 dogs towing two sledges. While 80 kilometres separated the vanguard and the tail end of the polar party once they were all moving, the dog teams quickly caught up with the ponies, and signs of trouble with the motor sledges, in the form of abandoned tins of fuel and lubricant, alarmed Scott before he reached the barrier. Five miles onto the barrier, Day's motor sledge lay abandoned. The steel engine components, made brittle by the cold conditions, broke under the workload placed on them. Further concern arose from the performance of the ponies. True to Oates' predictions, they weren't up to much. Scott expressed surprise at the tenacity of the dogs and their ability to work into headwinds that put the ponies out of action. From corner camp, Scott spotted the black dot that gradually resolved to Lashley's motor sledge. A note left by Lieutenant Evans revealed the same cylinder failure as crippled Day's machine. The motor party continued onwards as a man-hauling operation. Marching the ponies at night offered better progress on the harder surfaces. The pony party adopted a staggered start, letting the slowest animals move off first and the fastest last in an attempt to keep the ten teams loosely together 
to facilitate communication. They found one-ton camp on the 15th of November and caught up with Evans' motor team, man-hauling their loads, at 80 degrees 30 minutes south. Small additional depots were laid at 60 to 70 mile intervals. The first of the ponies to falter, Jehu, was shot in late November and butchered for dog food and as a hoosh supplement. By the 2nd of December, they reached 83 degrees south, five ponies down and those remaining pulling slowly on the difficult surface. Each pony death weighed on the individual driver. Charles Wright recording, Chinaman died tonight of senile decay, complicated by the presence of a bullet in the brain. Poor old devil. He never shirked, and was capable of reaching the beard mall. Dogs had to be fed was the trouble. The remaining five ponies were killed at Shambles Camp, at the foot of the Beardmore Glacier. Mears and Geroff headed north with the dogs on the 11th of December. They considerately, perhaps life-savingly, rebuilt the cans destroyed by recent blizzards, ensuring the parties to follow them north could pick their way to the depots laid every 60 miles or so. Mears found the going hard, the dogs not making good on their anticipated distances. Having gone further south than originally planned, the dogs were losing condition and the slow pace of their return journey took a penalty on the rations available to the drivers. The two dog teams reached Hut Point on the 4th of January, 1912, and Mears headed on to Cape Evans, arriving on the 5th. Three sledges towed by Scott, Wilson, Oates and Taffy Evans in one team, Lieutenant Evans, Atkinson, Wright and Lashley in another, and Bowers, Cherry Garrard, Crean and Kiahan began the long ascent, three kilometres onto the Polar Plateau over almost 200 kilometres of the Beardmore Slope. The Beardmore offered variety missing in the monotonous flatness of the barrier, but the spice of life isn't all it's cracked up to be if that variety comes in the form of crevasse fields and steep slopes up which you must manhaul while sinking into snow up to your knees with every step. Lieutenant Evans' team fell behind their companions and Scott broke them up, sending Atkinson, Cherry Garrard, Wright and Keohan north from 85 degrees 15 minutes south on the 22nd of December, hoping to consolidate the strongest remaining sledges from which to make his selection for the final party of four. Lieutenant Evans, Bowers, Lashley and Crean carried on together in the new arrangement. Cherry Garrard felt disappointed, but Wright was bitter, certain that both he and Cherry Garrard were in better condition and working harder were in better condition and working harder than Lieutenant Evans, and that his own singling out as the weakest member of Bower's team was incorrect and unfair, being entirely a matter of expediency to keep Evans, second in command, as close to the polar party as possible, his having sacrificed his own expedition ambitions and funding opportunities for his position under Scott. According to his diary, as far as Scott was concerned, the only choice lay between Cherry Garrard and Oates. 
many diaries record disquiet with Lieutenant Evans. Jerry Garrard disliked hearing him badmouth Scott to the officers and men, and Bowers spoke of the lieutenant's behaviour as seditious. Silas Wright thought Evans wasn't pulling his weight on the sledge, though having hauled, with Lashley, since the breakdown of the motor sledges, that might be understandable. Dr. Atkinson departed with instructions to bring the dogs back onto the barrier, assuming Mears, the most experienced dog handler, had already departed with the Terranova. In time to meet the polar party, in order to carry any news north with all haste. The optimal outcome being that the news of a British triumph could go north with the ship. One account of a glacial traverse is much like another, thoroughly miserable. So I'll mention that Atkinson's team encountered the same dysentery, crevasses, lost cans and hard slogging as attended all parties, whether heading uphill or down. Apsley Cherry Garrard did make particular note of a day when Kiahan went down crevasses eight times in a 25-minute span. Notes left by Mears at the depots told Atkinson's party of his reservations about resupplying depots after reaching Hut Point. Estimates based on his progress put him too late in the season and with the dogs too worn out to reach one-ton depot with replacements for the stores depleted by the visits of the three parties preceding Scott and Co., Atkinson, Wright, Kiahan and Cherry Garrard put themselves on short rations to try to ensure they would leave one ton depot as much intact as possible for those to follow. To their delight, they found surplus stores at one ton. Day, Hooper, Clissold and Nelson set out from Cape Evans on a resupply mission just five days after Day and Hooper returned from the barrier on the 21st of December. That's pretty hard case. Atkinson's supporting party reached Hut Point on the 26th of January 1912 and carried on to Cape Evans shortly after. With snow blindness, sunburn, cramps and regular crevasse falls by sledge leaders adding their own layers of misery to the proceedings, sledging on the sticky, steep surfaces of the Beardmore is best articulated by Bower's diary on the 13th of December. We stuck ten yards from the camp, and nine hours later found us little more than half a mile on. I have never seen a sledge sink so. I have never pulled so hard, or so nearly crushed my insides into my backbone by the everlasting jerking with all my strength on the canvas band around my unfortunate tummy. Scott's experiences in Victoria land with Tappy Evans and Lashley, a decade earlier, informed the choice to keep clear of land at the edges of the Beardmore, and they encountered fewer crevasses than Shackleton's team, but everyone took their turn hanging in their traces, having broken through a snow bridge over open space. Fewer is a relative term. On the 30th of December, Lieutenant Evans' team shed their skis and depoted a hundred pounds of stores. Celebrating New Year's Eve with an extra cup of tea and adding liners to their tents, Titus Oates, free of his concerns about ponies, relaxed in Scott's company for the first time, speaking with him at length about his past, their antagonistic relationship ended, and a sense of camaraderie born of hardship mending the fences. Many factors worked against Scott in this final stage of his polar foray. 
the failure of his motor sledges and the shortcomings of the ponies left his sledge teams in a poorer condition than he'd planned in mapping out his journey, and with Amundsen likely making an earlier start from closer to the pole, he knew the pressure was on. But he didn't realise the sledging rations, calculated on the experimental run during the Cape Crozier journey, didn't match the nutritional needs imposed by man-hauling on the polar plateau. The high altitude made for lowered temperatures, provided a lower oxygen partial pressure in every breath, and cheated the men of even more water than the dry Antarctic air at sea level did with every exhalation. The rations provided 4,500 calories a day. Subsequent measurements by Sir Ranulph Fiennes and Dr Mike Stroud demonstrated ascending a glacier to the polar plateau burnt around 11,000 calories a day and trekking on the plateau used up more than 7,000 calories a day. Scott's team were on a starvation diet in spite of the rich, fatty hoosh they fueled themselves with. On the 3rd of January, Scott made his selections for the party to make the final push. Himself, Wilson, Oates, Bowers and Taffy Evans. Some authors cite this as a canny move to represent the Navy, the Army, the Marines, the Lower Deck and Science as well as representing England, Scotland, Ireland and Wales into the deal. And I think there's something in that, as the support of all the parties represented might have served Scott well had he returned home triumphant. But with Taffy Evans and Bowers the strongest sledges, and with Bowers adding a spare navigator to back Scott's calculations, and Evans providing a seaman's practical capacity to repair equipment, their inclusion seems axiomatic, regardless of their representing anything. Oates, hard as nails, outwardly, was keeping quiet about the trouble his Boer War leg wound was giving him, and accepted his slot graciously. Wilson was never in question as a member of the Pole Party, but more for his close friendship with, and fierce loyalty to, Scott, which helped buoy their leader through many tough times between the two Antarctic expeditions. This left Lieutenant Evans out of the running. Evans felt extremely bitter to have worked so hard and given up so much to be turned back when so close to the pole. But the hard hauling he and Lashley did since the motor sledges broke down left him physically out of the running, and the bad blood between he and Scott meant he didn't stand much chance of ousting Wilson or Oates, even if he was in prime condition. Though if Oates had spoken out about his leg... Hmm... Lashley and Crean accustomed to accepting naval orders without question, didn't bucket Scott's decision to send them north. The decision to take an extra man south, when the original plan only accounted fuel and food for four, receives a lot of scrutiny in the literature. Scott's clearly too intelligent to have ignored the pressure this put on their supplies, but he must have thought that pressure balanced by the advantages of that extra man. But that only four of the five had skis, Bowers having left his behind at the final depot, indicates how late the decision to only send three men north at this final parting came to Scott. Lieutenant Evans, already pissed at not heading to the pole, felt further embittered that his team, two of whom already hauled further than anyone else, would head north short-handed. He managed three hearty cheers with Crean and Lashley, though, 
as they watched Scott, Wilson, Bowers, Oates and Evans head south from 87 degrees, 38 minutes south, not realising they were seeing them alive for the last time. Evans, Lashley and Crean soon had reason to rue their seeding Bowers to the Polar Party. With two of them already weakened by more manhauling than's good for a body, their descent of the Beardmore featured many navigational problems among crevasse mazes. Lieutenant Evans suffered snow blindness and diarrhoea during the descent, and on reaching the barrier was showing the swollen joints and discoloured skin symptomatic of scurvy. By the time the trio reached One Ton Depot, Evans was pissing blood and close to collapse. Four days on from One Ton, on the 13th of February, Evans asked Lashley and Crean to leave him behind. The petty officers refused and towed Evans on their sledge, from where he fell in his tracks to just shy of Corner Cant. On the 18th, Crean headed for Hut Point on his own. Their skis already jettisoned to save weight, and carrying only some chocolate and three biscuits, Crean footslogged the 30 miles to Hut Point, covering the distance in 28 hours, while Lashley kept the barely conscious Evans company in the tent. The weather grew thick as Crean neared Ross Island, and his attempt to round Cape Armitage caused him some concern when he felt water coming up through his finesco, indicating thin ice. He backtracked to the gap and made his way around Observation Hill and on to Hut Point, finding Dr Atkinson and Dmitri Gerhoff in residence. Atkinson and Gerhoff headed out with the dog team the following day and collected the invalid and his carer from the barrier. Atkinson, default leader in Scott's absence and in light of Lieutenant Evans' illness, and also being a doctor, decided his priority lay with seeing to Evans' survival, and ignored Scott's instructions to send the dogs south to meet him on the barrier, instead sending them north to ensure Lieutenant Evans could be invalided back to New Zealand aboard the Terranova. With Mears and Dimitri heading home, and Wright engaged in the research at Cape Evans after Simpson's departure, the only remaining dog driver capable of setting out on the barrier was Apsley Cherry Garrard, whose short-sightedness and inexperience in navigation made him a less-than-ideal candidate, and besides this, no dog food cache existed to carry a dog team beyond one-ton camp. Meticulous meteorological observations and position calculations characterised the journal entries of the Polar Party, suggesting that if they were men on the physical edge, they were still holding their mental shit together, though an error, blamed by Scott on Bowers, led to a 26-minute disparity in the two chronometers the party carried. On the 9th, the quintet passed Shackleton's furthest south, but the sledging was becoming heavier work in spite of the lightening load, as their health deteriorated under the cold, dry, high conditions, and insufficient rations. On the 12th, a hard surface offered a good day of hauling, but as with Griffith Taylor's experience on the bicycle, sometimes an easy trip out only leaves you gasping under altered conditions on the way back. Scott's team might have made it to the pole and back to safety if everything fell their way from this point onward. But Scott's old habit of optimism over the things he could not control 
which repeatedly cast his best laid plans aglay in past projects, prevented his contemplating conditions failing to favour them, and likely nothing would have turned him aside from reaching the pole going back as far as 1904. They laid a depot at 89 degrees, 27 minutes south on the 15th of January, carrying forward with supplies for nine days, but expecting to reach the pole in two. On the afternoon of the 16th, Bowers spotted what might be a can or a large sastrugus, but half an hour later a black speck became clear, definitely indicating a human artefact in the landscape of white. Marching onward, they found it was a black flag on a sledge bearer at the site of a former camp, which featured the ski tracks and the footprints of men and many dogs. Scott's team camped, but no one got much sleep, knowing they were beaten in a race they never knew they were entering until Amundsen's telegram turned up in Melbourne. Nothing gave a concrete indication of when the Norwegians passed that way, but the fraying on the flag gave Wilson an impression that it flew for at least two weeks, maybe three in the recent weather conditions on the plateau. Hauling on the following day in the coldest conditions experienced since they left Cape Evans, negative 22 degrees Celsius, and with frostbite affecting Evans' hands and Oates' feet, they pushed on. Camping at 6.30pm on the 17th of January, those inside the tent prepared a double serve of hoosh, while Bowers made sightings and calculations showing them to be three miles from the pole. Two miles from their camp, they found a tent, surmounted by a Norwegian flag. Inside, some clothing, sleeping bags and instruments deemed surplus on Amundsen's return journey, a brief account of the Norwegian party's sledging, and letters addressed to Scott and King Haakon VII of Norway. The Norwegians made the pole on the 16th of December, a full month ahead of the Brits. They raised the Union Jack. Wilson made some sketches. Bowers took some photographs, the images of dejected and exhausted men beside the Norwegian tent becoming iconic in both exploration lore and Scott's legend. A half mile from the tent, they spotted a can by which the Norwegians marked their approximation of the pole itself. Scott carried his flag to the can and left it in place, taking the sledge runner from the can to act as a boom for the floor cloth sail he proposed using on the sledge to aid their progress north. Bower's diary records, What a place to strive so hard to reach. It is sad that we have been forestalled by the Norwegians but I am glad that we'd done it by good British man-hauling. Scott's thoughts ran, Great God, this is an awful place, and terrible enough for us to have laboured to it without the reward of priority. Now for the run home and a desperate struggle. I wonder if we can do it. They turned north with seven days of food in hand and four awaiting them at their most recent depot enough to cover the distance to the next depot, with some in reserve. But the pulling seemed harder, even with a full sail on the sledge, taking advantage of the prevailing wind. And they felt the cold more keenly as their fat reserves dwindled and their strength ebbed. They could at least rely on their tracks to lead them to the safety of their food caches, if the wind held off, which it didn't. 
with two gales starting up as the sledging season waned. Accurate navigation and the cans laid on the outward journey became paramount as missing a depot meant starvation. Wilson expressed concern that Evans and Oates were falling prey to frostbite regularly. Evans on his nose and fingers and Oates in his feet. Wilson began to experience snow blindness on the way to the three degree depot which they reached on the 31st of January 1912. While the depot gave them their next quota of food, Wilson strained a tendon in his leg and had to walk beside the sledge, using it as an assistance in order to keep up the pace of the march. Evan's fingernails began falling out. The temperature dropped well below those experienced on the way south, making for sticky surfaces and hard hauling, which caused Scott a shoulder injury in a fall while in harness. Evans took a fall on the 4th of February. Already losing heart, no longer the cheerful shire horse of the team, this incident precipitated his mental decline. Evans became slow-witted and barely spoke. At the Upper Glacier Depot, they discovered an entire day's rations missing, a note from Teddy Evans recounted the safe passage of his trio, but Bowers saw fit to curse the man, blaming Lieutenant Evans for leaving the pole party short rationed. In spite of the predicament the team faced, low on food and all but Bowers carrying some injury, Scott and Wilson continued to seek opportunities to fulfil the expedition's geographic and scientific obligations, sending Bowers to Mount Darwin to collect rocks and camping near a moraine deemed likely to yield interesting samples. Adding 30 pounds of rocks to a sledge already sapping the strength of the people hauling it seems, at this end of the historical telescope, an attempt to rationalise their efforts as something more than just a failed gambit in a race to the pole. Certainly, enough authors have cited those rocks as the clear difference between Scott's and Amundsen's efforts, so I guess it was a successful attempt. Descending the glacier proved harder than climbing it, and on the way down to the mid-glacier depot, Scott lost track and led them into a crevasse field. At first thinking themselves too far east, then too far west, a firm decision to head west got a result, but at the cost of many taxing crevasse falls. Three days of hard work and uncertain navigation saw them with one day's worth of food left in the bag. After a false sighting by Evans, Wilson spotted the depot flag, and to the relief of all, they had three and a half days of food in hand to reach the glacier terminus. Notes from both previous returning parties reassured Scott of the safety of his support teams, but his confidence in their own chances of making it home was shaken badly by the maze of crevasses they'd just traversed. Another such detour would lengthen the odds against them, making them infinite. By the 16th of February, Evans was broken. Scott wrote with surprise at the complete absence of the man he knew as an indomitable and self-reliant tower of strength. Bowers wrote scornfully of a loss of guts, and Evans acting like an old woman. On the 17th, he appeared to rally, but lost ground on the sledge. Unable to pull, the others left him behind, sweating in their harnesses at the added load. When abreast Monument Rock, 
The team stopped for lunch and watched Evans as a speck in the distance behind them. Evans didn't arrive, appearing further away the next time they checked, and everyone headed back to him on their skis. On his knees, his bare hands badly frostbitten and his clothing askew, the barely sensible Evans couldn't articulate what was wrong, beyond that he thought he must have passed out. Raising him to his feet, he managed a few steps before collapsing again. Evans lost consciousness before they got him to the camp and died that night. Half an hour after the petty officer breathed his last, the party broke camp, making their way to Lower Barrier Depot. The following day, they made their way to Shambles Camp and feasted on the abundance of horse meat cached there. Sticky surfaces from the falling temperatures made pulling north over the barrier harder than on the trek south, and strong winds on the 22nd obliterated all ski marks. The party missed a horse cache, and while they found the next depot proper, they were short on food and shorter on fuel. Recall that food's no use if you can't thaw it, and if you can't make your water, you'll die of dehydration, regardless of how much food you have in hand. Six days of food, three days of fuel, and 31 miles lay between them and One Ton Depot. If everything fell their way, that was doable, and the possibility of a dog team coming out to meet them, as Scott ordered Lieutenant Evans to arrange before he headed north, offered an idea that could keep the worst-case scenario from preying on their minds, though the decision made on the way south to task the dogs with the full haul to the Beardmore meant no cache could be left by which to extend the range of a subsequent dog foray to meet Scott & Co. at 82 or 83 degrees south, as per the orders passed north. They reached a depot and found the fuel supply short. Some later blamed faulty seams on the cans, Cherry Garrard thought evaporation past the leather o-rings, damaged by temperature changes, the culprit. Whatever the cause, fuel became the single critical factor limiting their life expectancy. Oates' feet went from bad to worse, and he followed Taffy Evans' pattern of silence and withdrawal as his condition deteriorated. On the 6th of March he couldn't haul, and by the 10th recognised that not only would he not survive but that he was a burden on his companions, both on the march and in the division of food. Scott missed several diary entries, and with the others already having quit their journaling, lost track of the days entirely, but an entry for the 15th or 16th notes that Oates requested he be left in his sleeping bag two days prior, but that his companions couldn't countenance that and cajoled him into carrying on. He slept that night, hoping not to wake. But when he did, he announced, I am just going outside, and maybe some time, before heading out into the blizzard raging across the barrier. The remaining trio marched on when the weather allowed, but they knew that without a relief party, they were poked. Wilson's and Scott's feet began to freeze. On the 19th, by Scott's diary, his foot was so bad it would necessitate amputation, and they remained three days' march from the one-ton depot with two days' food and one day's fuel to do it on. Food and fuel became moot at that point. A blizzard set in and kept them in their tent, the wind sustaining the following day 
and dashing the hope that Wilson and Bowers might make a bolt for the depot and return to Scott with sufficient fuel and food to see them through. A diary entry on the 22nd and 23rd of March notes that the sustained gale kept them tent-bound and that the following day represented their last opportunity to get anyone to the depot. Wilson wrote letters to his friend Reggie Smith and to his wife, Oriana, his tone fatalistic and his words full of his Anglican faith. Bowers wrote to his mother, his letter also full of God and praise for his companions. Scott had already written to his wife with regrets about his calibre as a husband, advising her to remarry and outlining a few wishes regarding the education of their son. In the tent, he wrote platitudes to his mother, assuring her that he and his companions were not suffering. He also penned a letter to the people of Britain. I should have had a tale to tell of the hardihood, endurance and courage of my companions which would have stirred the heart of every Englishman. These rough notes and our dead bodies must tell the tale. But surely, surely, a great rich country like ours will see that those who are dependent on us are properly provided for. A last entry in Scott's diary on the 29th of March, 1912, reads, I do not think we can hope for any better thing now. We shall stick it out to the end, but we are getting weaker, of course, and the end cannot be far. It seems a pity, but I do not think I can write more. R. Scott For God's sake, look after our people. That's where we leave Scott's corpse for the moment, 11 miles short of One Ton Depot, lying in a tent with Wilson to one side and Bowers on the other because there's a bunch of meanwhile stuff to catch up on. Griffith Taylor led a second Western Geological Party to Granite Harbour, 80 kilometres north of their previous explorations of the Victoria Land coast. Comprising Taylor, Debenham, Trig Vergraun and Robert Ford, the party departed Cape Evans on the 5th of November 1911 and established a base camp at the mouth of Granite Harbour on the 30th, from which they made their surveying and geologising forays. Throughout December and the first half of January, the party made the most comprehensive geological study of an area in Antarctica to date. Taylor and Debenham discovered fossil-bearing sandstones and coal deposits on the slopes of Mount Seuss, and discovered and named the Debenham Glacier. Returning to the coast for the predetermined collection by the Terra Nova on the 15th of January, the party saw no sign of the ship. Taylor moved the party 15 kilometres north to Cape Roberts, hoping to sight the ship, which they did, but it was too far out to sea for anyone aboard to spot them, let alone for effective signalling, and the sea ice between the ship and the shore was too young to support an attempt to sledge out to it. On the 1st of February, with the days shortening rapidly, they gave up waiting and began heading south along the coast. Over two weeks, they traversed to Cape Chocolate, where the Terra Nova spotted and collected them. Next, we have to look to the exploits of the Eastern Party, and it's one of the most astonishing tales of exploration and survival against stacked odds. 
Many of the people left dead in this episode will be revised to reprise their roles in the movements of Victor Campbell and his men. That episode will also recount more clearly the various movements of the Terra Nova while all of this South Pole action was happening. I've had quite a bit of contact with listeners in the month since episode 37 was released. Stephanie Langridge, Rope Access Technician, subscribed to the Patreon account, as did Antje Duvacott, a musician putting in an application for the Artists and Writers program. I don't use the Patreon account, partly because I wanted the material I generated as Patreon incentives to be incorporated into the series as a whole, and partly because I've been hearing some pretty bad things about Patreon. A hack made against their database released a lot of personal information of Patreon users, and a couple of people I know who rely on Patreon as their primary source of income have been experiencing trouble getting paid, and it sounds like Patreon's not giving good customer service on that front. So thank you very much for the subscriptions, it's really a a huge boost to my confidence, but I'm not going to be doing the Patreon fundraising for the Ice Coffee series. Just sec and I really hope that I'm not getting that catastrophically wrong, but I think my Polish pronunciation is probably worse than my Hungarian pronunciation, uh, got in touch at the Facebook page and answered what I thought was a pretty tricky question about the identities of some polar explorers, and he was able to not only name all eight, but also the expeditions that they were associated with. So I was pretty impressed with that, particularly that you got Robert Beige, who isn't particularly well known. I'll provide a link to some of Aunt Jo Duvicott's music at the blog and the Facebook page. She's got one of those voices that just makes you stop what you're doing and pay attention. I've tried to keep my Scott episodes as pithy as possible, but there's so much information to get through. There's probably two episodes in the offing about the Eastern Party, and then I'll move on to the efforts of Nobu Shirase and the first Japanese Antarctic expedition. Meanwhile... Take care and appreciate your coffee.